Thanks for that reading, Margie. And um, good morning, friends. It's great to worship with you. It's great to see you here on this sunny Sunday. Um, This past week, I was thinking about a couple things. Um, One was just the gift that this community is to, um, to me and to each other. There's so many ways that we are overlapping and uh, supporting each other. And if you would like to um, also be part of that community, you know, ingrain yourself in more ways, there are other things that we can do. There's groups that you can connect with and just want to lay that as a foundation, as a plug to um, invite you into that if that's something that you feel would benefit and give you life. Another thing that I was... um, Another thing that I was struck by this week was a friend who kept talking about Disney Plus. Anyone? He's like talking about it over and over and over again. It's the thing. He's pumped about it. He's thrilled. There's plenty of great content he's talking about. And he's like, it's perfect for my kids. It's awesome. He might be getting paid secretly for it. I don't know. He's really selling it. But he was texting me, and he was telling me about this new show. And he's saying, you got to watch this show. It's so good. Then the conversation pivots a bit, and then he starts going on this big riff about how now that he's an adult, he has to watch these children's movies that he never thought he would have watched in the same way now and understood the meanings that he's taking from now that he would when he was a kid. So he's thinking like, Man, I have to watch this movie 70 times. There has to be something more than just an animal loving another animal or something. Um, there's, like, there's, there's meaning in it that is deeper for him. So he's talking about Zootopia and how it's this whole distinction between... Um, it's, a, it's an allegorical critique of the world and how to counter prejudice. He's reading that into the movie, right? And certainly his kids aren't doing that, but there's two levels of meaning that's happening as he's watching this film. And similarly, this is how most good stories work, right? Like music, art, film, the best ones have these layers of meaning, these these depths and richness embedded into it that allows it to speak to multiple people, watching the same thing, reading the same thing, and yet to leave with a, a gleaning, something to take away. And so today in our passage this morning, Luke is complexly layered, right? After this conversation I had with my friend, I looked at different children's curriculums specific for, like, what are the takeaways that we teach our kids when we read a passage like this, when we read Luke 8? What are the things that we leave with? And I looked at a whole bunch of different curriculums, different teaching plans, just to say, what's the takeaway? And it seemed to me that the takeaways landed in two categories. One is, the lesson was focusing on, there is no problem that is too big for God. There's no problem that's too big for God. One category. And the rest of the lesson plans talked about it in this way. Jesus will heal you when you put your faith in him. 
right? Jesus will heal you when you put your faith in him. So two categories that all these different lesson plans centered around. Actually, both of those lines are direct quotes from different teaching plans on how to talk about Luke 8. You know, that's not all bad. There are, these are true conclusions from the text. Like, they're rooted in the text. And indeed, in this story, Jesus does heal a woman with an issue of blood and a girl who is sick and then dies. He raises her from the dead. So, it happens. There are problems that are not too big for Jesus to take care of. And then also, Jesus heals when they demonstrate faith, right? It has that whole line about, if you believe, if you have faith in me, if you trust in me, I will heal. But what I found to be really interesting about both of these conclusions was I realized that this week, if I preached either one of these stories, right, like the lady being healed or the girl being healed, if I taught either one of them, we get to the same conclusion. Like you still get to, there's not a problem that's too big. If you have faith in him, he will heal. And I was wondering, like, if we get the same conclusion by isolating these stories out from each other, isn't that just interesting that we tend to do that? We bracket out the stories to isolate them. So we'll teach the story of the girl or we'll teach the story of the woman, but we won't actually look at how they interact with each other in the text. In the text, they're sandwiched between each other. And so what does that mean? Right? What does that mean? Is, does it make a difference at all? And as we read that passage as a whole, is there another layer of meaning that's waiting to be unearthed there? The answer is yes, right? That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at how that happens, what conclusions come from there, and we're going to explore that this morning. What is another layer to this rich, rich story? And so if you would, friends, please join me for a word of prayer Um, let's discover what God might be saying to us this morning. Holy God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for your presence, for your love. We pray that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word and that it would lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we learn and discern your character this morning, and we pray this with Christ by the power of the Spirit. Amen and amen. So, all fall, we've been going through a series called Portrait, Representing Christ in Our City. And we tried to, in this series, identify distortions that the world might hold about Christianity, about God, right, about Jesus. And then we've tried to respond to these distortions by diving into the scriptures, right, by rooting some kind of truth there to say these distortions aren't true here. And today, as we wrap up our series, we're going to actually flip the script a little bit. We're going to do the same type of thing in the opposite direction. So we're going to look at a distortion we might hold in the text, and then we're going to respond to this different reading by saying, what does that actually mean in our lives? What does it mean for us? What does it form in us? And so if you're following along in your outline, uh, here's the first blank. We distort the gospel when we isolate the text, right? We distort the gospel 
when we isolate the text. Think about the takeaways in eight different children's curriculums or teaching guides or outlines. Think about the the two takeaways, right? No problem is too big for God to take care of. And then Jesus will heal anyone if we put and when we put our faith in him. Are these things true? As a general rule, yes, right? Further nuance is probably required, but generally, sure. And is this true when it happens in Luke 8? Yes, it does. And are these the only things that should be gleaned from this passage? Absolutely not. Here's what I mean. In this passage, we have two separate healings happening. But as a story, again, one healing begins, another one takes place in between, and then the first healing ends. And so there's meaning across the whole story that we can't afford to miss. Typically in our preaching and our teaching, we present these as separate stories. We isolate the events away from each other because it's, it's easier to preach, it teaches better, right? it's more manageable. But doing this causes us to miss a layer, right? Miss some of the richness there. So take a look at verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, and they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter a girl of 12 years old, was dying. So pause here and actually like create the image in your head. Paint the image so you can see it, okay? Jesus is walking. There's this huge crowd. Jesus is being swarmed. And then a man, Jairus, who is what? He's a synagogue leader, right? A notable member of his community. He has the space to approach Jesus. He falls in front of him. And he's able to have this intimate moment, right? This moment with God. I picture it almost like, um, have you ever seen a public proposal, like a marriage proposal? You could be in Times Square or something, and everything's full. There's so much going on, and the world just stops. The crowd just kind of like makes a pocket for this moment to happen. It's just about them. Everything just stops in that moment. It's an amazing scene. That's how I picture the scene. I think that's how we can picture this scene, right? This man comes up through this crowded area, stops Jesus and says, help me. He pleads with him. But this is only one part of the story, right? Don't Isolate the text, because when we do, we'll miss some things that God is trying to say to us in this passage. Verse 42. As Jesus was on his way, the crowd almost crushed him. Notice that note. The crowd almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, and no one could heal her. So she came up behind him, and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. So now keep that film rolling in your head. Keep that picture rolling. 
Jesus and now Jairus are on their way with the rest of the crowd to Jairus' house. Right? The, note text, the, the text notes, again, the crowd was so much it almost crushed him. And then people aren't playing games. Everyone wants to get to Jesus, so much so that the woman with the issue of blood could only manage to touch the edge of the cloak. And not even from the front, from behind. It's like desperation, last ditch, um, touch. And do you see the stark contrast here, right? You have Jairus who makes his way through a crowd and is able to have this moment. And then you have this unnamed woman have to fight her way through the crowd to Jesus and the crowd doesn't fan out at all. Right? This time, the crowd doesn't stop. It's not frozen in time. They don't have their moment. This time, the closest she can get is to touch the back of his cloak. And so here's the sequence. Do you see it? Can you envision it? And now jump to Jesus' response to this unnamed woman in verse 47. Then the woman... Seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at Jesus' feet. So right here, like Jesus said, who touched? Power went out from me. Right? I know that something has happened. And she, knowing that she can't go unnoticed anymore, she has to reveal and say, here, I, I was the one, and here's my story. The text actually says she has no choice but to share her story. No choice but to share the shame that comes in that moment, the injury, her history. Because for 12 years, she has been subject to bleeding. Right? 12 years, she has struggled physically. And in our present world, that is troubling enough. But in this woman's world, at this time when this is happening to her, there's a crucial detail we can't miss. And that's this. She is unclean. She is ceremonially unclean. Like, she shouldn't be in this crowd she technically isn't allowed in the city. And under the law, in order to be ceremonially clean, she needs to not bleed for seven days. Right? This is the structure. This is the framework she lives in. So this isn't then just a physical isolation. Right? This isn't just her case. That happens, but... She has struggled physically for 12 years, and then she's been isolated socially and religiously for 12 years. But wait, there's more. As someone who is unclean, if she touched anyone, anyone else's clothes, Anyone who is clean, she renders that person unclean as well. That's the way the law works. And that person will be unclean for the rest of the day. 
So everyone in the story knows this, right? Jesus knows this. Jairus, the synagogue leader, he certainly knows this. He's a practitioner of the law. The crowd knows this. The woman, she knows this. And by her act, she has just made Jesus, quote-unquote, unclean too. The rest of the day is ruined. Sorry, Jairus. Like, we were on your way, but not anymore. But right here, this moment, is where we miss the gospel if we read this passage as isolated healings. Because in truth, there is another healing that happens right here in the text. It's right under our noses. We might skip over it. But it's here in the passage. So yes, Jesus will raise the girl from the dead. We know that. And yes, Jesus has healed this woman with the issue of blood. We know that. But now notice Jesus' response. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And this is so important, and yet it's so easily missed. Remember, for 12 years, the lifespan of Jairus' daughter, this woman was seen as a nobody. She's been unclean for 12 years. She's been alive, but she hasn't been living. She's been isolated and relegated to the margins of society. But Jesus, in response to an act that should make him unclean, Jesus humanizes her. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And this is not just for her sake either. Of course, after 12 years, these are words she needs to hear. But also, Jesus does this for the sake of the crowd, for the sake of Jairus, for everyone present witnessing Jesus' action in this woman's life. Like Jesus makes it absolutely crystal clear who this woman is. She is a daughter of Abraham. She is a daughter of God. And in response to the woman, this third healing occurs because Jesus is confronting the biases of the crowd. And he's saying to anyone who thinks that they are a daughter or son of God, that this woman, this daughter of mine, is your sister too. She's part of the family. And so Jairus, if you're going to plead for your 12-year-old daughter, which you should, there are needs that need to be met, will you not also advocate for this woman who has been as good as dead for 12 years, the lifespan of your daughter? This is healing in progress. Like we are witnessing in the text Jesus healing Jairus in the moment. 
If we read these stories in isolation, we will miss this third layer completely. Because, yes, no problem is too big for Jesus to take care of. Yes, Jesus will heal when we put our faith in him. But also, Jesus' sons and daughters, our brothers and sisters, are all around us. They're all around us. And so whether they are clean or unclean, whether they break our laws or keep them, whether they think like us, worship like us, whether they have different values, Jesus calls them daughter. Jesus calls them son. And Jesus humanizes our neighbors where they're at. And hasn't he done the same thing with us? And so the way that then this text, read as a whole, reads us is it asks us whether or not we'd care for the marginalized or the oppressed as if they were our own flesh and blood. Do you hear the question the text is asking? Would you care for the marginalized and the oppressed as if they are your children? your brother, your father, your mother, your grandparents. If we'd intercede for our own, will we not also intercede for the rest of God's family? Don't miss this layer, friends. There are more than two healings that are happening in this passage. In fact, this is going to be a little meta, but if we if we fail to notice the implications of how Jesus is proclaiming the daughterhood of this unclean woman, we actually embody exactly what the crowd is doing in the story. Like, we become them who go unnoticing. We don't notice her. And so that brings us to point two in our outlines. A distorted gospel keeps us from wholeness. A distorted gospel keeps us from wholeness. At this point in the story, imagine that you're Jairus. Remember, you're a synagogue leader, right? People respect you. People look up to you. You are a moral authority in your community's life. And now, as you're watching Jesus, the one who you thought was going to heal your daughter, he just came, just became unclean when he healed this unclean woman and called her daughter. You realize that if he enters your house, your house becomes unclean too. And so this is disorienting for you, right? As you're processing what has happened, there's confusion, there might be disappointment, uncertainty. Someone from your house, they come and they say, hey, your daughter is dead. There's no point in having Jesus come out anymore. You can just stop. It won't help. And then Jesus says to you, don't be afraid. 
Just believe and she will be healed. And now you, Jairus, you have a choice to make. Do you call the whole thing off? Or do you let your household become unclean because you believe in Jesus that much? You see, the text isn't clear what it means when it says just believe. Believe in what? Believe in what? Is Jesus saying, just believe that she will be raised from the dead? Is Jesus saying, just believe that your servant, the one who just came, is mistaken? Right? Are they wrong? What is Jesus saying? If Jairus was following the wisdom of his day, what he believes as gospel, Jairus probably should have called the whole thing off. Based off his vocation, his religious convictions, most in his case probably would have called the whole thing off. But here's where Jairus should be an inspiration for us. He believes in Jesus. And not just intellectually, the idea is there. A.W. Tozer used to say something like, the most important thing about a man or humanity is um, what you think of when you hear the word God. Yeah, that's not... It's more than that, right? It's not just what you think about God. So many people can think about God. But what does that do? What does that form in you? If it doesn't form you to be a better person, what good is that God? And in many ways, this embodied practice that's happening for Jairus in this text is that he believes And above his religious training, above his sense of morality, above what having a clean household and an unclean household might mean, above his reputation, above all these things, Jairus believes that Jesus is able to do the impossible. And so, notice, whereas he fell down at Jesus' feet and then the woman followed, his act of faith comes after he sees her act of faith. And when seeing how the story's laying that out, he welcomes Jesus into his own home, which pushes back on all the religious sensitivities that he has. But he does it because he believes that Jesus is able to bring wholeness to the broken, healing to the sick, and life out of death. And so he doesn't let a distorted view of religion or God keep him from pursuing wholeness for his own daughter. Continuing on with Jesus, even when his servant tells him to not not carry on, don't bother the teacher, this is his act of faith. They continue on to his house, even though it shouldn't make sense, even though that will taint his reputation and the cleanliness of his household. He does it anyways. And that brings us to point three. We're invited into complexity. We are invited into complexity. 
If you've grown up in the church, especially in the church circles that I grew up in, it is not uncommon for healing to be turned into a kind of propaganda. Like we tell stories that reinforce the first two layers of this story. We tell stories that really emphasize no problem is too big for God. We tell stories that say Jesus heals when we have faith in him. And again, true things. But oftentimes when we talk about healing in such a way that it doesn't come out the way that we had hoped for, it leaves us anchorless in the waves. When we talk about suffering, especially in church settings, we like perfect endings. And so if we're telling Luke 8, we'd say, look at God. He acted, and this woman... She never had a health problem again. That's how we'd tell that story. Or we'd say, look, Jairus, or Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and then Jairus spent the rest of his days telling others what Christ had done in his life. Maybe this is true. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us anything else about these people in the story. But this is the beauty of the passage. This is the invitation that the text actually gives to us now. If the band could come. Today, we've seen how this passage talks about healing on multiple levels. Right? We discovered this when we read the passage as a whole unit. Right? Not as isolated text, but as a unit we see that there's multiple levels of healing. Not just the healing of a woman and a daughter, healing of a crowd, the healing of the biases of a father. There's so much healing happening, bringing to wholeness, restoration happening. And then we also looked at how Jairus is an inspiration because of his act of faith to press on even when his actions are counter to his religious sensitivities. Like he's an inspiration in that his perceptions and his response to religion, the thing that keeps him anchored, his very vocation didn't keep him from pursuing wholeness for another. But now, as we reflect on how we've read the text today, the Spirit invites us to look up and to look out. Look up from the way we've read this text and just look out in the world around you. This passage describes the healing of momentary sickness, describes the healing of chronic illness, describes the healing of biases and prejudice, of shame and fear. It also describes how to heal tribalism This passage shows God healing in 12 years of long-suffering and then also bringing life out of death in a moment. Do you know people in need of healing today? Because if you do, as you reflect on all the different kinds of healings, that are present in this text, when we read it as a whole, 
I'm sure there are people that God is bringing to mind right now. And that's where the text invites us. Have faith in God because God can do the impossible. So more than being a prescription for how we get God to act on our behalf, right? we can sometimes preach this text and say, well, healing will come if you have enough faith. Look, it happened in this text. More than being a prescription, though, to say this is how you get there, this story gives us a foretaste of what God will do in time. Like, God is not bound to time. God is not done being God in the world. And so Christian hope rests on the promise that Christ is making all things new. And God is good. That's where we root our hope. And so take heart, friends. This story is an example of how God heals in the world. It's an example of how God heals in the world. And it doesn't cover everything. It might lead to more questions. But for us, this is crucial. Who is God inviting you to notice? And then will you intercede for them as if they are your own? Those are the questions this text asks us. And so as we sing and reflect on these questions, obey the Lord. Look up and look out. Pray in hope and in the hope of Christ. And allow yourself to be surprised by the ways that God is acting in the world around us. As we sing, we'll have Joni and Kurt here who are willing and ready to pray with you. But let us pray for a moment and reflect on the words spoken here. And reflect on your own life. How is this present in the world around you? Holy God, we are grateful for the gift of this day. For the ways that you are God who heals. And we pray you would heal us in ways that we know we need and in ways that we also aren't yet aware that we need healing. Make us truer people. People who are able to discern you and the world around us because we want to be made more like you. May we notice our friends and family, the ones that you call your own. And we pray this with Christ by the Spirit. Amen.